0: Chapter 6 of Aunt Jane's Nieces at Millville. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Bloomfield. Aunt Jane's Nieces at Millville by L. Frank Baum. Chapter 6 Peggy Presents His Bill. Millville waited in agonized suspense for three days for tangible evidence that the nabob was in their midst, as Nib Corkins poetically expressed it. But the city folks seemed glued to the farm, and no one of them had yet appeared in the village. As a matter of fact, Patsy and Uncle John were enthusiastically fishing in the little bill, far up in the pine woods, and having the time of their lives in spite of their scant success in capturing trout. Old Hucks could go out before breakfast and bring in an ample supply of speckled beauties for Mary to fry, but Uncle John's splendid outfit seemed scorned by the finny folk, and after getting her dress torn in sundry places and a hook in the fleshy part of her arm, Patsy learned to seek shelter behind a tree whenever her uncle cast his fly. But they reveled in the woods and would lie on the bank for hours, listening to the murmur of the brook in the songs of the birds. The temper of the other two girls was different. Beth de Graff had brought along an archery outfit and she set up her target on the ample green the day following her arrival. Here she practiced persistently, shooting at 60 yards with much skill. But occasionally, when Louise tired of her novel and her cushions in the hammock, the two girls would play tennis or croquet together, Beth invariably winning. Such delightful laziness could brook no interference for the first days of their arrival, and it was not until Peggy McNutt ventured over on Monday morning for a settlement with Mr. Merrick that any from the little world around them dared intrude upon the dwellers at the Wegg farm. Although the agent had been late in starting from Millville, and Nick Thorne's sorrel mare had walked every step of the way, Peggy was obliged to wait in the yard a good half hour, for the nabob to finish his breakfast. During that time, he tried to decide which of the two statements of accounts that he had prepared he was most justified in presenting. He had learned from the liveryman at the junction that Mr. Merrick had paid $5 for a trip that was usually made for two, and also that the extravagant man had paid 75 cents more to Lucky Todd, the hotel keeper, than his bill came to. The knowledge of such reckless expenditures had fortified Little McNutt in marking up the account of the money he had received, and instead of charging two dollars a day for his own services, as he had first intended, he put them down at three dollars a day, and made the day stretch as much as possible. Also, he charged a round commission on the wages of Lon Taft and Ned Long, and doubled the liveryman's bill for hauling the goods over from the junction. Ethel Thompson had refused to accept any payment for what she had done, but Peggy bravely charged it up at good round figures. When the bill was made out and figured up, it left him a magnificent surplus for his private account. But at the last, his heart failed him, and he made out another bill, more modest in its extortions. He had brought them both along, though, one in each pocket, vacillating between them as he thought first of the Merrick Millions and then of the righteous anger he might incur. By the time Uncle John came out to him, smiling and cordial, he had not thoroughly made up his mind which account to present. "'I must thank you for carrying out my orders so intelligently,' began the millionaire. "'Without your assistance, I might have found things in bad shape, I fear.' McNutt was reassured. The Nabob would stand for Bill No. 1, without a doubt. i tried fur to do my best, sir.' he said. And you did very well, was the reply. I hope you kept your expenditures well within bounds. The agent's heart sank at the question, and the shrewd, alert look that accompanied it. Even millionaires do not allow themselves to be swindled, if they can help it. Bill number two would be stiff enough. He might even have to knock a few dollars off from that. Most things is high in Millville, he faltered. And wages has gone up just terrible. The boys don't seem to want to do nothing without big pay. That is the case everywhere, responded Mr. Merrick thoughtfully. And between us, McNutt, I'm glad wages are better in these prosperous times. The man who works by the day should be well paid, for he has to pay well for his living. Adequately paid labor is the foundation of all prosperity. Peggy smiled cheerfully. He was glad he had had the forethought to bring Bill Number 1 along with him. Horses is high too, he remarked complacently, and lumber and nails is up. As for the livestock I bought for ye, I found I had to pay like sixty for it. I suppose they overcharged you because a city man wanted the animals. But of course, you would not allow me to be robbed. Oh, course not, Mr. Merrick and that nag in the stable is a sorry old beast." Peggy was in despair. Why in the world hadn't he charged for the beast? As it was now too late to add it to the bill, he replied grudgingly, "'The horse you mention belongs to the place, sir. It went with a farm long o' old Hux and Nora.' "'I'm glad you reminded me of those people,' said Uncle John, seriously. Tell me their history. Louise sauntered from the house at this juncture, and sank gracefully upon the grass at her uncle's feet. She carried a book, but did not open it. "'Ain't much to tell, sir, about them folks,' replied the agent. Cap'n Wegg brung the huxes with him when he settled here. Wegg were a sea-captain, you see, and when he retired he wanted to get as far from the seas he could.' "'That was strange. A sailor usually loves to be near salt water all his days,' observed Uncle John." Wall, Wegg, he were different. He come here when I were a boy, bringin' a sad faced young woman and old Hucks and Nora. I suppose Hucks were a sailor too, though he never says nothin' bout that. The captain bought this no count farm and had this house built on it, a proceedin' that, if I do say it, struck everybody as curious. It was curious, agreed Mr Merrick. But the curses thing was that he didn't make no tempt at farming. Folks said he had money to burn, for he loaded it into his fool house and then sat down and smoked all day and looked glum. Ole Hucks planted the berry patch and looked darted the orchard and the stock, but Cap'n Wegg only smoked and sulked. People at Millville was glad to leave him alone, and the only friend he ever had were Crazy Will Thompson. Crazy, as a loon, the agent hitched uneasily on the lawn bench where he was seated, and then continued hastily, but that ain't neither here nor there. A baby was born out a time, and while he was young, the sad-faced mother sickened and died. cap'n wegg give her a decent funeral and went right on smoking his pipe and sulkin same as ever. Then he-he died rather lamely, and Joe that's the boy being then about sixteen, dug out and run away. We ain't seen him since." "'Nice boy?' asked Uncle John. Joe were pretty well liked here, though he had a bit of his dad's sulkiness. He and Ethel Thompson, Crazy Will's granddaughter, seemed like to make up together, but even she don't know what draw him off, unless it were the captain's sudden death, nor where he went to. Uncle John seemed thoughtful but asked no more questions, and McNutt appeared to be relieved that he refrained. But the bill ought to be forthcoming now, and the agent gave a guilty start, as his patron remarked, I want to settle with you for what you have done. I'm willing to pay a liberal price, you understand, but I won't submit to being robbed outrageously by you or any of your Millville people. This was said so sternly that it sent McNutt into an ague of terror. He fumbled for the smallest bill, tremblingly placed it in Mr. Merrick's hand, and then, with a thrill of despair, realized he had presented the dreadful number one. "'It's—it's a count of what I spent out,' he stammered. Uncle John ran his eye over the bill. "'What are Plymouth Rocks?' he demanded. "'Hens, sir.' "'Hens at a dollar apiece?' Thoroughbred, sir. Extra fine stock. I raised em myself. Hmm. You've charged them twice. Eh? Here's an item. Twelve Plymouth Rocks, twelve dollars. And farther down, twelve Plymouth Rocks, eighteen dollars. Oh, oh, yes, of course. You see, I sold you a dozen first, of the dollar kind. Then I thought as how, being fine young birds, you'd be tempted for to eat them. And a dozen don't go fur on the table. So I up and sold ye another dozen. Extra old stock and remarkable high bread. For a dollar and a half each. Which is dirt cheap because they's too old to eat and just ripe for layers. Are they here? Every one of them. Very good. I'm glad to have them. The cow seems reasonably priced for a jersey. It is just extraordinary, exclaimed Peggy, reassured. And your people have all done work of an unusual character in a painstaking manner. I am very much pleased. There seems to be a hundred and forty dollars my due, remaining from the five hundred I sent you. Here it is, sir, responded McNutt, taking the money from his pocketbook. In another place he had more money, which he had intended to pay if the smaller bill had been presented. Uncle John took the money you are an honest fellow mcnutt said he i hadn't expected a dollar back for folks usually take advantage of a stranger if he gives them half a chance so i thank you for your honesty as well as for your services good morning the agent was thoroughly ashamed of himself to be such a duffer as to return that money when by means of a little strategy he might have kept it made him feel both humiliated and indignant. A hundred and forty dollars. When would he have a chance to get such a windfall again? Pah he was a fool to copy his identical thoughts, a gold dumb, blithering idiot. All the way home he reflected dismally upon his lack of business foresight, and strove to plan ways to get money out of that easy mark. Didn't the man rob you, uncle? asked Louise when the agent had disappeared? Yes, dear, but I wouldn't give him the satisfaction of knowing I realized it. That was what I thought. By the way, that Wegg history seems romantic and unusual, she said, musingly. Don't you sense some mystery in what the man said of it? Mystery, cried Uncle John. Lordy, you no, know, Louise. You've been reading too many novels. Romances don't grow in parts like these. But I think this is where they are most likely to grow, Uncle persisted the girl. Just consider, a retired sea captain hides inland with no companions, but a grinning sailor and his blind housekeeper, except his pale wife, of course, and she is described as sad and unhappy. Who was she, do you think? I don't think, said Uncle John, smiling and patting the fair cheek of his niece, and it don't matter who she was. I'm sure it does. It is the key to the whole mystery. Even her baby could not cheer the poor thing's broken heart. Even the fine house the captain built failed to interest her. She pined away and died and... And that finished the romance, Louise. Oh, no! That added to its interest. The boy grew up in this dismal place and brooded on his mother's wrongs. His stern, sulky old father died suddenly. Was he murdered? In a low voice... Did the son revenge his mother's wrongs? Bigglepith, Louise. You're getting theatric, and so early in the morning, too. Want to saddle my new farm with a murder, do you? Well, it's rubbish. Joe Wegg ran away from here to get busy in the world. Major Doyle helped him with my money in exchange for this farm, which the boy was sensible to get rid of, although I'm glad it's now mine the major liked joe wegg and says he's a clean-cut fine young feller he's an inventor too even if an unlucky one and i've no doubt he'll make his way in the world and become a good citizen with these words uncle john arose and sauntered around to the barn to look at the litter of new pigs that had just then served to interest and amuse him the girl remained seated upon the grass her hands clasped over her knee and a look of deep retrospection upon her face End of chapter six, recording by Mike Bloomfield, San Francisco, California.